Hi, this is Steve Katz, formerly of Blood, Sweat and Tears, and you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. My name is Robert Miller. I am your host. I'm very pleased to tell you that my band, Project Grand Slam, will be performing a benefit concert on Tuesday, August 17th in Lenox, Massachusetts, in the Berkshire Hills, for Shakespeare and Company, a premier Shakespearean acting troupe. We'll be appearing in the Tina Packer Theater starting at 8.30 p.m. If you're in the area, please come out and see the band, and you'll be supporting a great cause. For tickets, just go to Shakespeare.org. My guest today is Leland Sklar, one of the very best and most recorded bass players ever in the history of music. I mean, this man is on the Mount Rushmore of basses. To put this in the proper perspective, if this was a baseball podcast, it would be like having Babe Ruth or Mickey Mantle as my guest. It seems like every famous rock and roll song ever recorded since the 1970s has Lee Sklar on the bass. James Taylor, Jackson Brown, Phil Collins, Toto, that's a list of artists that only scratches the surface of people that this man has played with. As a bassist myself, I want you to know I am totally intimidated to have this man on my show, but I figure, hey, somebody's got to do it. And we're going to do a song fest in the second half of this episode, something I really love to do with my musical guests. I asked Lee to pick out a handful of songs that he's played on and that he likes, and I've added one or two more myself. We'll hear them and we'll talk about them. Oh, and I almost forgot to mention that Lee has the greatest beard that you've ever seen. Just take a look at the photo that goes along with this episode's show notes. In the meantime, my featured song for this episode, which is playing underneath this introduction, and then you'll hear it later, is called Stockbridge Fanfare, which is on our East Side Sessions album that was released just before the world closed down in 2020. It's a song that I wrote for this small town in Western Massachusetts that I absolutely love. And it represents small town America in general. The song has got a James Taylor type vibe to it. And I chose it because Lee is so associated with James, who happens to live nearby. So Lee Sklar, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm thrilled to be here. I mean, you are absolutely a legend in this time on the base. And let's talk a little bit about your formative years. I know you're from Milwaukee, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The home of Schlitz, <laughs> the beer that made Milwaukee famous. Latst and Pabst. And there were so many of those beers that came out of uh, Milwaukee. It was an amazing brewery city. And, you know, I looked it up. Schlitz is still being made there. Yeah. 
It's a, it's a, it's amazing. I, re, I mean, my family moved to Los Angeles when I was uh, about four and a half years old. So, you know, I, my recollections uh, of my childhood really are Los Angeles, but uh, there are things about Milwaukee, I remember. And then when I would go back there on occasion, the smell of hops in the city when all the breweries were going, it was unbelievable. I mean, it was such a defining smell. And all of a sudden, my infancy came roaring back to me. Was, <laughs> I didn't drink when I was between one and four, but I could sure smell. You could sure smell it, I'm sure. So I ask all my guests, was it your dream when you were young to become a musician? Well, I I started studying piano, classical piano, when I was five years old, but I never really, I never really thought about it. That being a, a music, being a career, it was just something I always did. And you study it, piano I, because your parents made you do it, or did you want to do it? I wanted to do it. My parents would watch the Liberace TV show when I was a little kid, and I became enamored with it. And we happened to have a baby grand piano in the house. My mom played a little bit of piano, but I mean, it was a family piano, but there was no real thing. But watching the Liberace show really sparked something in me. And uh, I started plunking around on the piano and, and my parents recognized that I had an affinity. And so we went out and got a teacher and then I became completely engrossed in it. And by the time I was Eight years old, I had won some awards from the Hollywood Bowl Association and met Eugene Ormandy from the conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra and uh, and just kept pursuing it. I, I really just absolutely loved it. There was no issue for my parents making me do anything. But then, you know, come to find that then a few years later, I was inducted into the Wisconsin Musicians Hall of Fame. And turns out Liberace is also in it because he's from Milwaukee. So you're talking about circles that come together. That was really pretty. Uh, that was like the Indianapolis Oval in that wow. one. So you were like a child prodigy on the piano is what yeah, you're saying. Yeah, I guess. You know, I, I had a, you know, an affinity for it and, uh, and, and went through it. And then when I went into junior high school, I kind of assumed I would be the piano player. You know, that's it's you're kind of geared in that direction. And the music teacher said, look, we got a lot of kids that play piano. We really need a string bass player. And uh, he pulled out an old K upright uh, out of the back room, this beautiful blonde old bass, and uh, put it in my hands. And I plucked one note, felt that vibration run through me. And I said, done, uh, let's, let's do the bass. And he started giving me rudimentary lessons on it. And I absolutely fell in love with it. You were playing in the in the orchestra and the band in school, yeah. I take it? Yeah, yeah. So classical music? Yeah, well, whatever the repertoire was, but mostly classical in that. But we had, a, there was also a dance band. And probably about three months into me picking up that bass, I was playing things like Autumn Leaves. And, <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, I, I've actually, we cut a record and I actually have the record here at home. It's a... Uh, when it's that naive, it's char it doesn't suck. It's charming. <laughs> I'm sure you're right. So <laughs> did you study the bass or did you just pick it up on your own? What was it? I studied, um, ended up with lessons the teacher gave me. Then I ended up with one teacher who I worked with for, for a number of years, then went on to another teacher who was 
one of the teachers that was really teaching all of the main bass players coming out of Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, he was wonderful. Nat Gangursky was his name. And uh, then uh, it was interesting that when I got into college, I went into the music department and I really found it very unsatisfying. At the end of the day, it seemed like they were just encouraging you to go for teaching credentials and not performance, even though there were amazing. I went to school with Tom Scott and there was amazing. Uh, my partner in crime in the bass department uh, was Daryl Dragon, who became the <laughs> captain of Captain and Tennille. And uh, I had worked with both his brothers in a band. And uh, But I, I didn't enjoy the music department. And I ended up going into the uh, administration building and taking a battery of aptitude tests. And my highest aptitudes were in art and science. So I let, kind of left the music department, spent the next three years um, studying art and and just jamming all kinds of science courses because I really love science. So the piano kind of disappeared and the music. I never got a degree. I spent five years up there, and at the uh, towards the end of my fifth year, that's when I met James Taylor, and my life completely flipped upside down. I would imagine so. You know, it's interesting that your career arc went like this because it, I mean, were you playing rock and roll when you were in college and before then, yeah. or what were you playing? I was, I was in bands from junior high school on. You made the jump to the electric at that point, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I was doing, you know, like outside of school, I was like in a, in a jazz quartet and uh, the school, it was really great. The school was very cool like you know kind of young rock bands and it got really frustrating when you had electric guitars and drums and you're trying to hear yourself at all it's just impossible so um uh, my father finally took me there's a music store called stein on vine which was uh, right at this point is across it was across the street from the um, musicians union on vine street in hollywood but back at that point it was in the building and my dad took me there and got me a melody bass and a St. George amp. <laughs> and my electric world opened up. And all of a sudden, I was a contender. I was, <laughs> I, I could be heard. I think my first bass was a Hagstrom bass and an Ooh. Ampeg B15 uh, amplifier. Well, you started off good. <laughs> I mean, a B15 is still such a desirable amp. You know, I, I have no idea what happened to it. Yeah. It, it, it's it's so many years ago. It, uh, who can remember? And, uh, you know, it's interesting because I only played bass because I was playing with guys who had, you know, we were all scotch taping microphones onto our uh, acoustic guitars after the Beatles came out because we knew we had to have electric guitars, but we we couldn't afford electric guitars. The only reason I became a bass player is because none of them could read any of the treble or bass clef, and I had played trumpet, and okay. I knew the treble clef, so I said, okay, I'll volunteer to be a bass player. That's the exact reason why I became a bass player. It's a good reason. And it wasn't until I was 19, I took lessons, as luck would have it, with a guy named Jimmy Garrison, who I'm oh, sure God, you know, yeah. you know, Coltrane's <laughs> bass great. player. And that changed my life. So it's interesting how people take different paths in music. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's one of these things I always encourage people to when I talk about careers and stuff. I say, never say no. You just never know what's going to be around that corner. It may seem like some weird gig and you're going, oh, I don't know. I don't really want to. 
and you go there and you might meet one person there that could change your life. So you just, you know, go into everything wide eyed and, and the, the, the worst that happens is it sucks and you don't do it again. Right. Okay. So you mentioned that you you're in LA and you, you ran into this guy named James Taylor who changed your life. Tell yeah. us about that. Well, I was at the end of the sixties, I was in a band called Wolfgang and we were managed by Bill Graham, whose real name was Wolfgang. And we thought, what better thing to, way to suck up to your manager than by naming your band after him? <laughs> uh, and, it, and I'm still in touch with the, the guys who are still sur- you know, surviving. We lost a few of those members uh, over the years. But our drummer, uh, his name was Bugs Pemberton, uh, was an English drummer who was a, a member of Jackie Lomax and the Undertakers in England, who were rivals of the Beatles back in the day. Uh, he eventually moved to Los Angeles, and he had a, a, a close friend named John Fishbeck, who owned Crystal Recording Studio in Los Angeles, and he had done like all the Stevie Wonder's early records, songs in the key of life, and things like that. Uh, John used to come up and hang out at our rehearsals with us, and at one of the rehearsals, a friend of his had just gotten back from the, from England, and he brought him to our rehearsal, and it was James. Uh, he had just come back after doing his first Apple album. And he hung out, uh, came up for a couple of days and hung out with us. And we listened to some of his songs. And we actually ended up doing like a hard rock version of Country Road. Uh, We just thought he was great. You know, totally different than us because we were totally, you know, two guitars, Hammond B3, drums and and bass and singer. So we were more of a total hard rock band, but we loved his writing. Then James got offered a gig at the Troubadour when his when his uh, Sweet Baby James album came out, and the the band was uh, Carol King on piano, and uh, Russ Kunkel on drums and Danny Korchmar on guitar, but they didn't have a bass player. And James told Peter Asher, who was managing and producing him, he said, "I was at this rehearsal and I heard this guy, and I think he'd be perfect for us." And they tracked me down, I think through through Fishbeck, and. Next thing I know, I'm playing. They asked if I want to do this. I said, sure. I was still in college. And uh, I said, yeah, you know, I'd love to play it. You know, figured it was one gig. You know, <laughs> what could I lose? And we played that gig. And all of a sudden, James was on the cover of Time magazine and everything changed. And they said, we got a tour. Do you want to do a tour? And I said, yeah, well, that that first gig turned into the next 50 plus years. <laughs> I got to tell you. A, a little story that goes along with what you just said. I was in Boston at this time, and I got, mm-hmm. I went into a club in Boston, a total dive. I call it like a bomb shelter called the Psychedelic <laughs> Supermarket in Kenmore Square in Boston. Wow. And I just go in there with my roommate on a Tuesday night or something like that, and there's a kid sitting on a stool playing guitar and singing. And it turns out it's James Taylor. And this must have been just before he went out to L.A. Because mm-hmm. he talked and we, we sat there for two hours listening to him. He was amazing. And the next week he was playing at the uh, at the bitter end in New York. And I called up a few of my friends. I said, there's a guy that you, you got to hear this kid. So we all went to see him. And, you know, maybe there were five people at the psychedelic supermarket. I think there were 10 people at the bitter end. And then, like you said, Sweet Baby James came out and the rest was history. Yeah, so that's well, great. Um, totally fast. And then, of course, I've seen him so many times since then. And you've been with James for forever now, right? 
Well, I was with James from 70 to 90. And in 1990, we had to part ways because in 89, we had done Phil Collins's But Serious album. And in 90, they, we had a tour that started, I think, January 4th and finished December 18th. So it was a solid year on the road. And at that point, James had no plans for the year. And, uh, and so I, I was doing Phil's tour. And then James decided he wanted to work and it was, you know, it was impossible for me. So at that point, we just, you know, it just became necessary to, uh, to move on. And uh, then the last time I played with James was when we did the James Taylor, Carol King Troubadour reunion tour, which was really an homage to the Troubadour and to the first gig we ever did. I did some occasional things. We did the first stand up to cancer telethon and James and Cheryl Crow. I did that. And then uh, I thought, no, the last time I saw James was uh, the Kennedy Center Honors when they honored him. And we put the original band back together um, with the section and Cheryl sang and James was up in the balcony kind of freaking out. It was, that must have been amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I love James dearly and um, he's still one of the most amazing artists I've, I ever worked with. You know, I, I miss you know, I, if I could have cloned myself, I, I would love to have done both things. But, you know, your word is your bond. And when you commit to one thing, that's what you do. And uh, that was the first time we ever had a scheduling problem. Because in the old days, like with Jackson Brown, we we would be out, you know, opening for James uh, with the section and then playing his show. And sometimes we would have a week off at the end of the tour. And then we would start like Jackson Brown's tour or, you know, vice versa, however it went. But the management teams all kind of worked together and tried to figure it out. But Phil's tour was so massive and so extensive that there was no windows within that to uh, say, well, let's take off, you're taking off a month here. We'll go out and then I'll be back. I mean, you've had such an, uh, an amazing run with so many artists. And uh, I'm just curious, is there anybody that you haven't worked with that you really wanted to work with? Oh, God, there's lots, lots and lots of, of them. Um, I've never had a chance to work with Winwood. I've always been a Steve Winwood fan. You know, I worked a lot with Art Garfunkel, but never worked with Paul Simon. And, uh, you know, as much as I've, I've met Elton, I never had an opportunity. I had an opportunity to work with him, but I was already committed to Veronique Sanson in France on a tour. But, you know, I'm also, at the end of the day, I'm fanboy. So, you know, I'm, I'm not greedy about it. You know, I, I can be an audience real easily and just sit back and appreciate other people. And, uh, you know, it's not necessary to work with them. I feel I've, I've been given a, a pretty big blessing of, of people I've worked with. So, and so, there's still stuff going on, you know, every day. So I'm, uh, I'm by no means end with done with things. That's, that's, you're, so you're, who knows? Your phone must ring off the hook. That's all well, I can it, imagine. It, 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 not anymore, because the, the, the times we live in now aren't like the, the golden age of when we were really going around the clock. I mean, you know, those days don't exist anymore. But I'm busy enough and I have enough activities going on where I really still feel viable and in the game. And, and especially with our band, uh, the immediate family, we are we just got out of a week in the studio and just cut 10 new tracks that are absolutely killer. So uh, there's lots going on. You know, I'm not, I would never complain about this. I'm really enjoying uh, 
the golden years. <laughs> but I just turned 74 the other day. So, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, it's hard to believe. But you're going as fast, you're dancing as fast as you can, right? Absolutely. These feet are on fire. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious about another thing. Who are yeah. your favorite bass players? Jesus, you know, it, it runs the, such a gamut because certain, also, you know, favorite bass players within genres. Sure. Uh, yeah, but, you know, for me, you know, it was it, when I was first starting with Upright, I was listening to Ray Brown and Red Calendar and Mingus and, you know, and, and, and bassists like that. But it, everything kind of changed, like for so many other people, like when the Beatles hit. And all of a sudden, you know, I was I was not into rock and I wasn't an Elvis guy or anything like that. But when the Beatles hit, it really changed. And and the uh, the quality of McCartney's work was really kind of turned, twisted my head around the melodic sense and, and the structure of his playing. And then so many that came out of that English invasion from Jack Bruce to, you know, you, you name it uh, with, with without within that entire genre. But there are so many, you know, L.A. has a wealth of great bass players. Uh, and, and there's so many people that that are really bass players. I absolutely love that never got like the high uh, recognition that that others have gotten that I just sit. You know, even people like Taran Porter from uh, the Doobie Brothers. It's like his bass playing is fantastic. And you know, whenever I see these lists of all the top bass players, I never see his name on it. And I'm going. Why not? His stuff for Peter Cetera in the in the early Chicago days of CTA was wonderful bass parts on those things. So, but there's some you know I you can kind of I could sit and listen to like Jocko, you know, or Victor Wooten or any of these guys playing, and you just kind of your mind's blowing. Yet you might hear somebody who's only been playing a year that actually might have something where you go, "That's really cool," <laughs> you know, because in their naivete. They're not in this other world and they might be coming up with stuff that you're just kind of going, what a cool idea. I would have never, th or maybe I thought of that when I had been playing for a year. And uh, so, you know, th there's a wealth of, of musicians. I, uh, I was interviewing uh, Steve Katz formerly from blood, sweat and tears the other day and blood, sweat and tears had one of my favorite bass players growing up, Jim Fielder. Absolutely. Um, you know, listening, to, uh, I practiced along to those first two Blood, Sweat and Tears albums. Uh, I thought he was an amazing player. And, and he also held his bass almost like it was an upright, even right. though he was playing an electric. <laughs> right. Yeah, Jim's a friend. I mean, I, I, we email every once in a while and stuff. But man, yeah, his parts on those records were really, really quite stunning. In fact, it was because uh, he played a, a Fender Precision. And yeah. uh Early on, I was playing a Gibson bass, but I looked at what he was playing. And of course, when you're young, you want to emulate, you know, the people that you admire. Yeah. And I walked into a pawn shop one day in 1974 or so, and there was a precision bass that was hanging on the wall. And I said to the guy that owned the pawn shop, how much do you want for this? He says, a hundred bucks. It's yours. And I took that bass. It was a 1960 precision, which I still use to, to this day, you know. So I, I owe that to Jim Fielder. <laughs> That's great. That's really good. You've had an amazing career with so many uh, artists. Uh, it, it boggles the mind. If you ever need a caddy like in, in golf <laughs> to carry along with you, 
I'm here. Just give me a call. I'll be happy to do it. it. <laughs> okay. If we can, let's move to the song fest side of things. Okay. Sure. Cause I think that's going to be fun. Again, I asked Lee to, uh, you know, put together a short list of songs that he's played on that, that he likes, I guess, either the bass playing or the song or both. And I added one or two to that list. And, um, we're going to be playing them underneath our talking, but I wanted to go through and just talk to, to Lee about the, the stories behind these songs. Sure. So the first one that you're hearing right now is the one is one that I added to the list. I'm going to do this in chronological order. This was from 1971. It was um, on the Mudslide Slim album that you did with James Taylor. And it's Hey Mister, That's Me Up on the Jukebox. And the reason I love that song First of all, the song is a beautiful song. It's a real James Taylor kind of song. Your bass playing on that song, when it got to the bridge, you you did something there that would, I just found it was exquisite. It was so tasteful. If there's if there's two words that I can use to describe your bass playing in general, it's tasteful and exquisite. And I mean that in all sincerity. Well, I'll try every time. Let you slip in one more dime And let the boy sing the sad one one more time I do believe I'm headed home Hey mister, can't you see That I'm as dry as a bone I think I'll spend some time alone There's a lot of players that just play as fast as they can and do as many, you know, fluffy things as they can. I don't I think that a great bass player will not only drive the song, but will fit within the song. I, I hope you agree yeah, with that. I absolutely agree. And I thought that that song, it, it, you just opened it up in that middle portion of the song. The thing that was interesting to me and also difficult in the beginning uh, playing with James was the fact that he's so underrated as a guitarist. And Which is crazy, has, of course. He has the most kind of, his technique is so comprehensive in terms of playing because he's all, his thumb is always playing bass. He's got, the way he interprets, when I started with him, I kind of thought, what the hell am I going to do? <laughs> you know, am I going to just aid him or, you know, how do I fit into this? Because he's already got the seat covered. And, um, so it really kind of required me to think about what I do in a very different way. I, I don't know whether my style would have been what it was had I started with a guy who just kind of strummed guitar. I was lucky to start with one of the best in the world. And, uh, and it required me to, to think in a different way. So when he brought in songs like Hey Mister and stuff, I, I, I've always been a tunesmith my whole career. The thing I always think about is, what does the song want from me? What does it need from me? I'm not there to be, like you said, showing off my chops or anything like that. If the song just needs, you know, big whole notes, how do you play a great whole note? Yeah, I mean, you can, you can do an entire kind of a clinic on playing whole and half notes. Right. And uh, uh, so it, w with James and, and songs like that, it really required me to find parts that would weave around him. It was more of a dance between us. 
And the thing that's really wonderful is over the past number of years, I've been one of the artists I've been working with is Judith Owen, Welsh singer, who's married to Harry Shearer. And one of the songs we did on the first album I did with her was Hey Mister. Really? She loved that song. And we did a reinterpretation on that and kind of, you know, paid homage to James's version on it, yet making it hers. It was a great album and a great song and great playing by you. Yeah. And a lot of that for him, it's like he got really weird. Like people would treat him like a jukebox, you know, like just drop a quarter in, you know, here's an, you know, play me another song kind of thing, rather than respecting the artist in it. It's like you're suddenly like a jukebox sitting in the corner. Interesting. Which made him crazy. Okay. So the second song we're going to go to now, you picked out. This is the, the, the big hit for Jackson Brown when, when his career began, Dr. My Eyes from yeah. 
you you did that shuffle kind of yeah. thing that I think was brilliant. Now, did you come up with that or was yeah. that part of the song? I came up with it. I mean, the, the, the songs were pretty just basically structured and laid out. So all the parts were, were ours. And um, it just, the thing I loved, especially in those days is we just, it was so organic and it was kind of like guerrilla recording not James's gorilla album, but gorilla <laughs> recording right. where there was no preconception about anything. So we'd get in there and, and number one, we weren't under the gun clockwise. So we had time to, you know, let things evolve. And I, I don't know at how many takes we did of that one. Cause it's still, it feels so fresh. I doubt we did a lot of takes of that song. Were you playing live in the studio, the whole band? Everything was always live. Now that doesn't happen that much anymore. When when my band goes into the studio, we rehearse like crazy. We go in the studio, we play live, and we get everything done within two or three takes at most. But it seems yeah. like music has gone completely a different way. It's track by tra instrument by instrument. But back then, you were, you were just all playing together, right? It was a live band, very little baffling, so a lot of leakage. And just there's a a, a, a a spontaneity and a juice that flows when everybody's playing together. Right. I mean, a, a great deal of my work is just going to people's houses before the pandemic. I'd go to their houses and just overdub bass parts on stuff. And I'm fine doing that. But at the end of the day, all I can affect is my bass part. And, 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 and it's confined to a click. So you really can't stretch out. And, and a lot of times they would say, okay, yeah, we're going to, now we're going to go in the studio and let do a drummer on it. Cause I'm playing to like either just a click with some, you know, some machine drums or something like that. Where in the studio, you, know, you, you would get in there, you would, you know, this, and all of a sudden you're working on, on a song and you're going, man, it needs a bridge. And the right. band would pull a bridge together or the artist never really thought about an intro so many artists that I've worked with over the years had never played with a band before. You know, just sat home and wrote their songs on their guitar and stuff, and they get in the studio. And it really, the band made those records. If you hear, you know, like the person sitting playing guitar, it's not what, what ended up being the record. Sure. Um, and, and, and it happens, there was a period where it almost never happened again. And then uh, over the past number of years, there's more and more people doing that, even going back and wanting to cut to tape in there. And when they start, you know, releasing their albums, they're now pressing vinyl again. And, you know, so the pendulum to an extent has swung back uh, a little bit, but th th that kind of golden age of recording, I, I don't think as a daily uh, occurrence will ever be back. Cause also so many of the studios are gone. The real estate got too valuable. Right. So, and kids are doing all the stuff at home on yeah. these little, you know, home machines and stuff. Yeah. 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 Okay. You picked out Stratus mm -hmm. by Billy Cobham. It was 1973. His album was Spectrum. Um, you did a bass figure on that song that is iconic. Everybody knows that figure. It's it's the groove. It's it's the essence of the song. It is the song. And I'm curious about, you know, how you came to that 
and uh, whether Billy Cobham or anybody else was upset. But I mean, you were the song. First off, it was a really unique experience doing this because our band, The Section, had been on the road for about six weeks opening for Mahavishnu Orchestra. And that's how I got to know Billy. And when uh, when the tour was over, Billy contacted me and he said, um, I'm, I'm going to do a solo album. Do you want to come to New York? We did it at Electric Lady Studios. And the thing that, that first off blew my mind was I had just spent all this time with Billy and Jan Hammer on the road. But when I got to the studio, there's Tommy Bolin playing guitar, who's one of the greatest guitar players ever. Well, when I was in Wolfgang in the late 60s, he was in a band called Zephyr, and we had the same management, so we spent time on the road together. And I had no idea he was going to be on Billy's thing. We hadn't seen each other in ages. So when we walked in there, when I walked into the studio, it was like old home week seeing, seeing him. And we, and we did all of our tracks pretty much in two days on that album uh we we i think tommy came in a day early because he couldn't read music and uh so uh, jan worked with him and helped showed him all the heads and jan had sketched uh some of the licks out for me and i could read so i didn't have to spend any time on it we just i just ran over them and, and figured them out but we were pretty much it was like a count off and let's go for it because those tracks were all pretty much within one or two takes. I don't think we did anything beyond two takes uh, on that. But when that settled in, because if you listen to the first bar, it's a little bit wonky because it came right out of just a press roll and a bam, and then it started. So we had no click or anything like that. So it took a few beats for us to settle in. But I think the essence of that song to me was always the monotony of that part. <laughs> it. I mean, and it's monotony isn't in a, in a negative term, but it's fascinating to me where I see tons and tons of people have done their versions of it on uh, YouTube. And generally the bass player is good for about 16 bars and then they start adding things. Well, it's very hard to do what you did, to just repeat that one figure and to not mess it up, you know, even yeah. once. Yeah. That's pretty hard. It's, it's intense. It's really intense. And I, I have had a lot, I've had a lot of guys write to me and they go, man, I always thought that was like just kind of a boring part. And then I tried to play it. <laughs> right. Holy, holy <laughs> crap, you know, because it really is. It's a real challenge just to, it's almost like a Zen thing. Right. You know, you get into that. And the essence of it is is letting everything around you travel while you're you know holding this thing together down, yeah. and especially on some of the things where Billy would do fills, you know, I mean, it, trying to hold on to that while while this guy's like a bunch of mosquitoes flying around you. It's face. it's almost like a heartbeat. It, there's a yeah. pulse that you just kept going for that whole song, which was remarkable. You know, I've heard a bunch of covers of that song. And the one that knocks me out every time is Jeff Beck doing it live. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen that one, but yeah, he's I've a monster him. guitarist, of course. Do it. Yeah. Every time I see Jeff, he comes running up to me and he goes, Stratus! Stratus! <laughs> I mean, he said that album changed his way of playing. The way Tommy played guitar on that album, Jeff says, changed the way he approached guitar. That's a big compliment. Pretty deep, pretty deep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did a beautiful one, and it, it sounded great when he went with Tal, and it also was, was amazing with Rhonda playing with him. Yeah. You know, both of them did really great jobs on it. 
Okay, next song, we're going to go back to uh, James Taylor. You picked out Your Smiling Face from mm-hmm. 1977 from his JT album. It's a spectacular song. Let's start with that. Yeah. I mean, it's such a happy song. Every time he plays it in concert, you just see smiles everywhere. And when you give me that pretty little pout, it turns me inside out. There's something about you, baby. In my opinion, I mean, I'm a bass player, so you'll forgive me, but you're the whole song, okay? If, if it wasn't for what you did on that song and, and your descending lines, etc., it wouldn't be the same song. So kudos to you. Just a spectacular song and a great bass part. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like that's one of those songs when bass players write in about things they always go oh man smiling face you know for some reason like the little breakdown section in the middle and all that and and it was interesting on that on that track on that album in the very beginning of the 70s yamaha came to los angeles with a bunch of one-off bases um that they really wanted to get some product evaluation on and so they gathered a bunch of us together and gave each guy a base to work with. Uh, Abe Laboreal got one, I got one, a whole whole bunch of guys. And that was the bass I used on that album. And uh, it, it was very much like a their version of a P bass. It was the same pickup setup as a P bass and everything. Uh, there were a few things about it I didn't like, and I told them and they never did anything about it. But I used that bass on, on a bunch of our section stuff. I, I, I sold it a number of years ago just because there's a finite amount of gigs and a finite amount of instruments that I really need. So I, 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 it bothered me to see instruments sitting in cases and not being played. So I thought it was better just to pass them out and let people, you know, go ahead and, and give them another life. But that song, the funniest part of it was because it goes through all those modulations right. during it. And the first time we ran it down and Danny Korchmar was so lost and he's trying to like, <laughs> play that line and somewhere there's a recording of it that's just so unbelievable of him just so frustrated and pissed off that he couldn't <laughs> figure that out but it's a it was a real fun piece of writing you know so and James pretty much thumbed a lot of that stuff so for me I just I just dug in where he was rather than looking for parts around him and we we doubled up on some things 
on that. And, the uh, uh, the break part in it, which yeah. you know has become kind of famous, if you will. How did that come about? The breakdown. It was just within the writing. James just said, "Let's do it. Why don't we do a break here?" And then that's all I I just came up with that. I see. So he had it in his thoughts going into the yeah. I think I, yeah. I think he he wanted this thing to open up. I mean, it was so you know kind of involved up to that point, and it needed a breath. And the duties fell on my shoulders <laughs> rather than it, it was better than a Timbali break, I guess. <laughs> yes, no, absolutely perfect for the song. It's it's interesting. I mean, how things when you're when when they're going on, it's interesting when they become uh, to a certain level iconic, and you never feel that when you're doing it. It's only t- only time in history that uh, that makes these things. Just like Stratus, when we played Stratus. Who would have thought that, you know, this is still, if I walk into any place in the world and there's a band playing and if they, if they wanted to do something and if I started going, man, all the players, no matter what their age is, just jump all over it. You they know? all know. So, who would yeah, have thought? You're right. You never know. Yeah. Okay. Your last song is from 1989. This is something you did with uh, Phil Collins, Another Day in Paradise from his But Seriously album. Yeah. And, you know, interesting, I knew the song, of course, but I had never seen the video of the song before. Mm-hmm. And when I watched the video, I said, boy, this is a whole different angle than I had taken on the song. It's it's a dark song. It's a dark video. Yeah. Yeah, it's really about homelessness and destitution. And, you know, saying another day in paradise is really just kind of like slapping in the face of really the reality of, you know, what so much was and is still. There's somewhere you can tell me He walks on, doesn't look back He pretends he can't hear her Starts to whistle as he crosses the street Seems You know, sometimes when you listen to a song, you kind of hear the words. You, you don't think that deeply about them. You, you, he's singing Another Day in Paradise. You're getting the image of yeah. a wonderful existence. It's and then, Jimmy Buffett. That's exactly right. <laughs> Parrots and yeah. all of that stuff. Yeah. But the thing that was great was when we, well, first off, the, the, the weird thing about that is when we did that album, we did that most of the songs one player at a time that was not very little of phil's stuff is collaborative playing the only thing when we did that album out at the genesis farm in, in uh, uh outside of guildford in, in outside of london and i was basically the first guy in on it so phil had done some pre-production he had drum machine and a few ideas uh, melodically but really not much in terms of lyric yet 
And so when I showed up there and he gave me that song, they, he kind of left me to my own devices to come up with bass ideas that they could build on. Because afterwards, when I left, Daryl Sturmer showed up then and did the guitar parts. And then later on, Phil did the drum parts and finished his vocals. So I really didn't quite know where we were headed with the song. But I, I kept dicking around with ideas until Phil finally said, oh, look, that's great, let's do that, let's use that on it. And um, and it changed a bit. I think on the original track, I played it up an octave using a Boss OC2 octave divider. But when, I, when we did it live, rather than messing around with pedals, I just dropped it an octave and, and, and played it kind of normally, uh, you know, sonically that way. But on that tour, when we did it live, uh, when that song was about to be done, we, uh, we were soliciting for homeless shelters in, in every city we played. Mm. And uh, we had buckets at the doors where people could make donations. And at the end of each gig, whatever there was, Phil would match. Um, and everything went to charity for that's that. Really and that nice. song really was the basis of kind of creating that. We, we donated tons to food banks and things like that. So it was it had a lot of life. You know, one of the things I like to do, and some of the people, some of my musical guests on this podcast have done, we, we like to write message songs. Especially during the past four years. I was usually kicked off of Facebook about 150 days a year for <laughs> things I've said on there. And I knew so many people that said, I agree with you, but if I say it, I'm going to lose people. I go, at the end of the day, it, it, it's like, I want this to be a better world, and if and if I, if I can't engage those people and at least open up a dialogue with them, and they're going to completely shut me out, then the, then that's the way it is. I'm not going to remain silent just to placate um, somebody who's who's the antithesis of of what I believe in, and they don't want to have a dialogue. They don't want to hear facts. They don't want to have any discussion. Their their heels are dug in deep. I'm going to go ahead and say it. And if they don't want to hear me play bass anymore, you know, that's fine. I'm not well, going to not going to lose sleep over it. Of course, that would be an overreaction to everything. And you you could not exist in this country and not listen to Lee Sklar on the bass because you're on everything. So if you listen to the radio. Like gum on your shoe. That's right. We, we can't get rid of them no matter what we do. <laughs> yeah. uh, Lee, it's been an absolute delight to have you on the show. Really, it's uh, such a momentous occasion for me as a bass player and as a musician. I followed your career for so many years. You know, the song that I started playing at the beginning of this episode is my Stockbridge fanfare. And I, I love I, it. I told you that I very consciously tried to write a James Taylor-ish kind of song. Yeah. Because it, I felt that, it, you know, this this town and, and the, the message I was giving would trans, would go along with that well. And frankly, the bass playing that I did on the song, I was aping you at the same time. So that was my homage to Lee Sklar. Well, I so appreciated you you shooting me the link when I listened to it. It made me smile because I have such fond memories of all the times you know we played Tanglewood and played you know you know Mass is such a huge part of James' life, and we played went through Stockbridge so many times. And when he sings from Stockbridge to Boston and the whole, the whole crowd is completely erupted. <laughs> exactly. um, so you did a great job <laughs> on it. I really enjoyed it. Well, thanks so much. Okay, so we're going to hear that song again now, and uh, I want to thank you again for being on this episode, and thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. 
Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. Small.